Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so with that being said, let's look at chapter 3. How do we make personal decisions? Because again, personal decision making is the foundation of marriage. We don't quit making personal decisions when we get married. Now I want to assuage one of the fears that I think you have if you know me, and if you don't know me, that you should have. You have a very OCD guy up here in front of you who would love to make a system that is very elaborate, that has seven steps that get us to the point that we'll always arrive at X, which is the treasure box of God's will. Nothing would make me happier if it was humanly possible. Uh, But this is why I will make the statement up front. Our decision-making process cannot be more linear than life allows. So what I will do in this chapter is I will give us a seven-step process. And on the handout that I've given you that has the outline of that, it gives you some questions that helps you assess, is this something that we're doing? If we were to have a decision that needed to be methodically taken through a detailed decision-making process, are we doing these things? But in the context of our presentation, what I want to do is to highlight those steps, explain them just enough that you understand them, And then talk about those spots that allow you to make that step a lifestyle instead of something that you have to do. Because unless it's a habit, unless it can be ingrained into how we live, then the likelihood that we're going to implement this kind of process on a consistent basis when we got two more processes to go is very low. Okay? Uh, So step one is to live your life with your yes on the table for God. And again, I think this is what Henry Blackaby was telling us earlier when he said the focus of the Bible is God. Uh, and that whenever our, shift, our thinking shifts from God to me, that's sin. Uh, and that when our focus shifts back to God, that's when we are allowed to do whatever it was that He created us to do that's going to give us the deepest and most satisfying and lasting joy that we can know. So here is the big question of step one. When I find God's will, is case closed? Am I willing to follow? Or do I still want the liberty to choose? Because I think what we do, myself included, is we like to view God as our favorite HGTV designer. And, and, you know, usually there's like some part of your house that's, you know, it's your yard or your bathroom that's going to be redesigned. And there's like three people who come in and they show you what they want to do. And we almost always love what God is up to. I mean, he has the best ideas. Uh, But sometimes there's one of these others that we just, we want the freedom to choose between the three. That is, that is not step one. That is not lordship. Um, 
Lordship means when God gives us direction, we follow it. And we can't just follow our heart, whatever we want to do. And I think that's necessary for two reasons. One, we've got bad desires. And we don't always see them as bad desires. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that our heart is deceitfully wicked and it's really hard for us to know it. We've all had cases where we thought a bad idea was a good idea and we didn't realize it till later. And then we have folly. All the kind of stuff that Proverbs talks about, that our heart is just bound up with folly. And by that, I think we either have so many good ideas that we can't do them and it overwhelms life, or we take one good thing and we exaggerate it beyond proportion. And so we need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Whatever He says, I will do because of sin and because of folly. Now, what we got in chapter 2 is that God is not a micromanager. But lordship is necessary. Now, I'll give you two lifestyle choices that I think are important for this kind of step. One, one is just a daily time of Bible study and prayer where we consistently hear the heart and thoughts of God. And the second one may not be as obvious. It's taking a Sabbath rest. Because if we do not obey God in resting, and we try to do everything else that's out there, we're going to get exhausted. We're going to begin to feel used by God. We're going to get cynical, and we're going to feel like, I just can't do it all. And we're going to begin to pull away from God because we don't trust Him. Not because we think His ideas are bad, just because they're not possible. And so I think Sabbath rest not because it's a rule that we have to follow, but because it's a gift that God desperately wants to give us so that we do not get a distorted view of His character is an incredibly part of step one. Now step two is identifying what you're stewarding for God. And I think James Petty helps us see where we get off step with that. He says, The path of wisdom is a lifestyle of repentance from serving functional gods like security, safety, control of situations, pleasure, power, ease, the avoidance of pain and approval. God will systematically expose any such rivals in our hearts that divert us from loving and worshiping Him. And again, I will tell you of the things on that list that I rattled off there, the one that gets me most is just control of situations. I want everything to go according to my plan. And God consistently takes my hands off of that and says no. Not because He's some kind of deity on a power trip, but because He knows the world that I would make is not nearly as satisfying as the one He wants to lead me into. And it's for my good that He's delivering me from that. Now you say, how do I identify what I'm stewarding? I'll give you just two questions that I think will encompass the majority of what finding God's will is about. The first one is this. What are the priority relationships and responsibilities in my life? Again, if I, I would dare say 85% of God's will for my life is wrapped up in the fact that I am a husband to Sally, that I am a father to Lawson and Marshall, and that I'm a pastor of counseling at the Summit Church. 
Uh, you add in that some other responsibilities of being professor at Southeastern and some other roles that I play. And the significant majority of finding God's will from my life is found in one of the primary relationships and responsibilities that he's placed me into. Now you add to that, what are my talents and areas of passion? And I think that's going to be the vast majority of God's will for my life. Because I think the majority of God's will is just doing with excellence the things that God has placed in my life and called me to do. Now there are times when day-to-day decisions are particularly hard and we need to give them more attention where there's kind of these ethical dilemmas that we don't know what to do or there's two really good opportunities that could take one of these areas in a different direction and, and we need to give that more attention. But I think if, we, if we're thinking clearly, that is the exception more than the rule and that takes a lot of pressure off of what we're doing. And so as we think about what our priority relationships and responsibilities are. And, and we ask, how do we make that a lifestyle? How do we make that just naturally what we do? Anytime we say yes, we should filter that through our priorities. When I say yes to something, I should think about how does that impact my role as husband, as father, as pastor, as professor? Uh, how, how does that fit in those key areas? And I should also spend as much time daydreaming about what's on my spouse's list of those key areas in her life as I do my own. Now you ask me, you say, Brad, I would love to do that. How? How am I ever going to discipline myself to do that? I think a great way to do that is through prayer. If I have the priority things that God has called me to, and I have the priority things that He's called my wife and kids to, and that's on a piece of paper that I pray through regularly, and I'm asking God, how can you use me in these ways? How can I be involved in it? What is it that you want to do? As I pray for the things that it would just seem like a no-brainer that I would be praying for, it is going to keep those things in front of me so that the main things remain the main thing. And so kind of a, a step three part off of that, manage the basics well. And so here, the driving point is simply that God's will fits in God's provision. And I think that principle cuts two different ways. First, God does not ask us to do things that require more than He provides. And so, again, as a parent, if I'm trying to decide, does God want me to send my kids to private school? And I look at my budget, and I say, there is no way private school is fitting in that budget then I should experience zero guilt when I say, no, God is not calling me to send my kids to private school. And so again, that, again, if God allows me and He says, yes, that money is there, or if I can sacrifice in other ways, then that may be within what God provides and I need to go to a next level of decision. But if it's not in what God provided, then I should feel no guilt because God's will fits within God's provision. Now, a second way that this principle cuts is that a large part of living within God's will is managing our time and money well. And I will tell you, when you say individual decision-making, how does this fit in a marriage seminar? A huge percentage of marital difficulties come because step three is not done. Couples don't manage their time and money well. They have unrealistic expectations for both. 
And that becomes a huge point of division. Now we come back to that point in terms of managing our time. And we hit that aspect of, but I can't do everything that God wants me to do. I mean, there's like 30-something one another commands in the New Testament that I'm supposed to do with every person in this room. I can't do all of that. Uh, And I will say here, uh, there's a concept that's been very helpful for me that I think is biblically faithful, that we prioritize absolutes. In different seasons of my life, there are certain things that I can give more attention to. And there will be certain opportunities that God brings into my day just in the rhythms of life that will allow me to do different ones of these things. And I would also say that in many of those commands, the you that God calls to do them is a plural you, y'all, southern style. Uh, And that this is where being a part of a church that has a biblically balanced and faithful vision so that as I am engaged with the life of my church, it allows me to participate in the broad array of things, whether I am supporting that, doing it directly, encouraging somebody in my small group who's doing it, that allows me to do that. Now, when we say, uh, how do we make managing the basics with excellence a lifestyle? Uh, I think a couple of things are in play there. You've got to have a budget. If you don't have a budget that allows you to manage your home finances well, then please leave here. Go to the Gospel-Centered Marriage Finance Seminar, which is on the website. Link, you'll find it on uh, your notebook. It is something that you can go to and begin to utilize. The two of you need to live, commit to live within your means, both financially and time. And I gave an entire appendix, Appendix B, on creating a time budget. Because I think it's something that as a culture, we just don't do well. God gave us a 168-hour week. And you'll hear me say this many times if you come to other seminars. It is so easy for me to have 200, 250 hours worth of good stuff that I want to do every week before I sin. That I just can't get done. But if I've got 200 hours worth of good stuff to do, I can rest in the fact that 32 hours of that is outside the will of God. Not because it's not good, but because He's fair. And as I think about what I'm going to do in a given week, what God wills fits within His provision. And so what that appendix, it's an excerpt from the booklet I did on burnout. It allows you to do what are realistic expectations for us as a couple. Because... As a couple, what I would advise of you is you need to have realistic expectations for your 168-hour week and however much time that you devote to one another, which what I recommend in that material is at least 17 hours. And you say, why do you say 17 hours? Two reasons. One, it's a prime number, so you will take me seriously. Uh, 17, it's just a weird number. He said 17, he means it. If he said 20, I think he means you know, like somewhere between 5 and 50. But 17, he, he, he means something. Uh, secondly, it's a tithe of your week. I don't think there's any biblical basis for tithe there, but I think my family deserves at least a tithe of my time. 168 divided by 10 is 16.8. Yes, I rounded up. Don't be a legalist with that, but wherever those hours are for you as a couple, they got to line up. They got As you look at what your priorities, what you're trying to get done... Whatever time we're going to spend as a couple, by definition, we both have to be there when it happens. 
Uh, and that's going to require some intentionality. And that is part of managing the basics with excellence. Now, step four. Watch for the challenges and opportunities. What we did in steps one through three is we created a normal. We created a weekly routine and a monthly financial expectation that we can begin to say, this is our normal. No week, no month is actually going to look like that, but there is something that we should be fighting for that would work for us. Okay, right now, our family, we're in the midst of baseball season. Part of what I love is coaching my kids, and I'm coaching a t-ball team and a coach pitch team, and for the last two months, we've been in abnormal. This Wednesday, that ends. And so there is a sense of normal in terms of our time commitments that we move into, that we are fighting back for, that we don't just let any number of other things fill that back up. And we decided as a couple, this was a worthwhile investment of getting outside of normal for, your, for a period of time because the win was worth the sacrifice. What we did in steps one through three is we set something like that up so that when we get to four, we can ask the question, what are the challenges and opportunities that exist when we step outside of that or when we begin to change major pieces of that? Now, I think James Petty helps us think about an aspect that we need to remember as we go into this. He says both wisdom and foolishness are self-replicating and self-reinforcing. We need advice if we, even if we are confident of a decision because most foolish decisions are clear to the fool. Uh, again, this is where, as we go into these areas of challenges and opportunities, as we begin to seek counsel and research information in step five, we need to involve other people because sometimes our common sense doesn't make sense. Um, and so, when we watch for challenges or opportunities, this is when either we are stepping outside of normal or our normal is changing. So, what do we have there? Um, I want to give us four areas, four kinds of questions that we're asking as we're looking for God's will in step four. One is just our daily opportunities. And I think this is where we come back to that idea of prioritizing absolutes. Uh, I have that sense of normal. Uh, I am, you know, one of the things I would advise in terms of making this a habit is just as you study your Bible, keep a list of the positive commands that you find. And then as you go through your day, just be praying. God, when? Where? Who? How? Give me eyes to see whenever there is an opportunity to do part of these number of things that you've called me to do. Because I expect you're a fair God and this is going to show up in the rhythms of my life. And I would do it most effectively in the rhythms of my life. Don't let me miss it. Let me just be praying for that. And it's a great way to convert your Bible study into prayer life into something that you live out. Secondly, uh, your daily temptations. Um, you know, we, we all face daily temptations. And whenever we sin, this is what happens. When we sin, we take time and we take energy that God intended for one purpose and we give it to another one. And it automatically takes us outside of God's will. And so part of what we need to do it's just part of seeking God's will is when this moment of temptation, I realize it's seizing on resources that don't belong. 
And so if I, if I take what God intended and I put it over here, here's part of what happens. Whatever it is that God wants me to do begins to become increasingly unreasonable and complicated. Because I took what He intended me to do it with and I gave it to something else. And so I begin to view God as unreasonable. And Satan uses that to just magnify temptation in my life. And so I would say one of the, one of the most overlooked, and again, this is that habit or lifestyle piece, one of the most overlooked aspects of living in God's will and finding God's will is just transparency with your spouse and with your small group. When I'm honest about where I struggle and I allow people to see that, and I speak it out loud. Because there is no way for me to speak temptation out loud and for it to make as much sense as it does in my own head. I mean, we know this. How many times have we had an argument in our head and we are so winning? And then we speak it out loud, and it just doesn't sound the same. Temptation, transparency. As soon as I speak temptation out loud, it sounds as dumb as it is. And that is the grace of God. And it's why God's given you a spouse and a small group to be protection. And then we also, uh, step four, we look at challenges and opportunities whenever we're in transition. Whenever one of those relationships or responsibilities is getting ready to substantively change. And, And at those times... We're entering into a new normal, and we want to be more deliberate. We probably do want to use these seven steps to help us think through it. And we also, we just, we know we have an enemy. We have an adversary who is crouching at the door. And what we learn about him in Luke 4, at the end of Jesus' temptation, it says that he left for a more opportune time. Well, think about it. In our life, what is one of the most opportune times? It's when our normal is changing. It's that first year of marriage, when everything is new, when you don't have any routine or lifestyle. It's when you go into a new job and everybody who did know you doesn't know you anymore. When you move to a new city and you lose all the relationships that was there. And we need to be very intentional about looking at both the opportunities and the challenges and temptations that come with that because those would be the times that Satan would use to disrupt our life the most. So that's when we need to be communicating best uh, with one another. Um, And so, uh, step five, pursue necessary information and counsel. Now again, the majority of the time, the most decisions that we make If we're doing what we've already talked about, the information we need, we've already got. If we're keeping up with a budget, we're managing our time well, we know what the major responsibilities are and when they're going to transition, we know what each other are passionate about, then at that point, when it comes to making a decision, a lot of research is not needed. Because we've organized our life in such a way that that, all that stuff is readily accessible. And so again, we're talking about atypical or transitional decisions here. Um, But then also in these kinds of things, we need to seek counsel. And James Petty tells us, particularly us men, um, 
that we may not be as good about this as we need to be. He says most of us, particularly men, do not put ourselves in a position to receive this kind of feedback, what we're about to talk about. He says, yet the one anothering ministry of the New Testament in Proverbs is basic to the ability to reflect God in our lives. And so if you say, who are the people that I need to be talking to in order to get counsel in the information that I need? I want to give you four groups of people. Now again, the same person may fill multiple of these roles, but I think there are four types of people that we need to talk to. One is somebody who knows you well. And I would say gospel-centered decision-making begins before we start to make a decision. It begins when we make ourselves known to people who can do what God calls them to do in the process of our decision-making. Again, the kinds of things. Who knows the way that you typically spin a decision in your favor? Who knows your most common fears and temptations? Who knows your family commitments and your personal limitations? Who has a good sense of what fits you? If there's not a name that immediately comes to mind, probably more than one, then you need to make yourself known immediately. You need to get in touch with our small groups team and say, we need to be in a small group because that's huge. You need to talk to somebody who knows your situation. Again, there's a 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no challenge, no temptation that faces us that is not common to man. When we go into a situation, other people have faced this before. Now, oftentimes, we just think about decision makers having characteristic struggles. Well, also, decisions do. I remember when my wife and I were getting ready to buy our first house. We made the mistake. We started looking at houses before we talked to somebody to tell us how to buy a house. And so we started looking. We found a house. We fell in love with it. We called her uncle who was into real estate. We said, how should we think about this? He says, don't fall in love with a house. And we said, too late. Um, it, there, again, he knew to say that right off the bat because there was a characteristic struggle to that decision. And so I need to talk to somebody who knows this decision well, the situation. I need to talk to somebody who I admire their character. Often in decision making, we get caught up in logistics. All we're thinking about is the outcome. And we miss character variables in play. So I want to talk to somebody who loves their spouse and kids well, who has integrity in their workplace and can navigate stress and conflict with civility and grace. And I want to ask them, in the midst of this, what are the character challenges that you see that I need to be aware of? And then I want to talk to somebody that I trust their wisdom. Um, it, again, they don't overcommit. They manage their finances well. They can filter complex situations. I would say they may or may not be a Christian, but they're really good at this kind of decision. I want to talk to them. And as I think about this becoming a lifestyle, I need to ask myself, do I have the humility to ask these kinds of questions? And if not, is it pride or insecurity that gets in my way? Whichever it is, I need to begin to deal with it. And then I need to ask, do I listen well when I seek guidance in general? And if I don't, I need to ask myself, is it fear or impatience that prevents me from asking these questions and listening well to the answers. And if I don't listen well, 
Go back to the communication seminar in chapter 2 on listening. Go through that. Encourage. One of the best things you can do for your spouse is encourage them to have the kinds of friendships that they can utilize in these moments. There are plenty of times in our marriage where, where Sally will be struggling with something and I listen to her and I care for her as best I can and I just realize this is a time when I need to shoot an email to one of her friends and say this would be a great day for you to call your good friend Sally. And then I'll come home and Sally will say, did you ask Christy to call me? And I'll say, yes. Uh, and she'll say, thank you. And me making sure that she's invested in those friendships is one of the best things that I can do to make sure that step five is accessible to her. Step six, seek God's guidance through study and prayer. Now, we're assuming throughout this process, Bible study and prayer is a regular part of what's going on. But I want to give you here six areas where you would be praying, God, show me, answer these kinds of questions for me. Uh, the first two are review. One of it is just spiritual awareness. God, is there any command that would be immoral? Is there any negative command that I need to be aware of that I'm missing? God, what are the positive commands that would influence this decision? Self-awareness. God, what are my motives? Both good and bad. I know I got them. Show them to me. God, what best fits the person that you made me to be? Um, I need to be praying those kinds of things. Uh, but other things that we haven't talked about. Family awareness. I need to be asking God, God, what are you doing in each of my family members' life and how will this affect them? What kind of challenges and opportunities will this put before them? What kind of sacrifices are they going to have to make and how do I need to be prepared to care for them in the follow-up to this decision regardless of what I do? Again, that's part of me thinking as a we as part of a family instead of a me. It helps me break out of that self-centeredness. Because as a husband, and I would say it's also true for wives, but I will speak for me. As a husband, a big part in any decision that I make that requires any level of sacrifice for my family is not just me making the particular decision that God would have me do, but me serving as the protector and shepherd for my family and whatever impact that that has on my family members. I need to be praying for that. Church awareness. God, how would this decision enhance or enable or block any aspect of what's going on through the life of my church? If my church is supposed to be my family, then part of what I should be praying through is, God, chances are big decisions are going to impact what you're doing here. World awareness. God, how would this decision in any way impact a new opportunity to share your gospel, to bring light to a dark place, to impact a segment of population that isn't being impacted right now, or would it restrict it in any way? I don't think there is any way we can know the heart of God and not ask that question about a major decision. And then finally, just a general spirit awareness. God, what is it that you most want to achieve in this decision? How is it that you're shaping me? What is it that you're wanting to do? Lord, is there anything that you would ask me to emphasize just any of these other areas? I think we should pray and expect him to lead in that. Now, I've given you six things. And if I give you a number of things, I think there's a natural question we at least have to touch on briefly. How many of these need to line up in order for this to be like God's will? Uh, is, it, is it three? Because that would be like 50% majority rule. 
Uh, is it just one? Because, you know, God doesn't need to repeat himself. And if he says it, that's enough. Is it all six? Because God is not a God of confusion. And they're going to line up if these are in play. You can probably tell I'm not going to give you an answer to that question. I think the bigger the decision is, uh, probably the more of them that should be there. But if we begin to think we've got to do math, then chances are we're going back to that bullseye mentality uh, where we're looking for the crosshair. Um, And so, uh, step seven. We need to decide with confidence and freedom. Uh, And when that point of decision comes, uh, I think James Petty brings up a very relevant point. He says, sometimes God grants us abundant time to decide. Sometimes only a split second. But the season of decision-making is under God's control. So when it comes, it comes with eyes planned. So again, there's going to be times when there's a big decision. And again, we total a car and we need a new car and we need to make a decision. I don't get to go through a deliberative process. There's the time when my wife and I were trying to decide. We got a second kid coming on the way. All of our vehicles are small. We need something larger. Are we going to get like an SUV or a minivan? And we got to go through that whole decision. And you know, we got at least nine months to know that's coming. And we get to go through that. Um, again, we want to be prepared so that whenever God would give us advance warning, uh, that we take advantage of that. But resting in the fact that when He doesn't, um, that we can still decide with confidence. And I think confidence would mean two things. An expectation that God will bless and the tenacity to make the decision succeed. And so as we come to this, we're coming to the end of kind of seven steps. And again, at the end of seven steps, the temptation is we're always going to arrive at the perfect decision. And I would just remind us, no, we won't. Or at least, no, I don't. And I don't think you will either if what I find in Scripture is is as true of you as it is of me. Because our confidence is not in an ability to master a system. Our confidence is in a God who redeems and uses our successes and our failures, our mistakes and our wisdom, and that our confidence is in Him. And we want to be as wise as we can be to be used by Him, but never letting our confidence be in our wisdom instead of our God. Now, if you ask, what should we have gotten to this point. Before we turn that corner and we go to consensus and headship and submission, which is kind of much more of that marriage material, what should we have gotten to this point that would be maritally enriching? I think what we've learned at this point, if properly implemented, would create three forms of trust within a marriage. First form of trust. I find safety and comfort in your character. I know what you're about. I know what you're after. Again, if you will go through this, your yes is on the table. I know the kinds of things that you recognize that God's will fits within God's provision. We're not going to go crazy outside of that. Then I find safety and comfort in your character. And that's one form of trust. The second form of trust. I believe you will follow through on what you say you will do. We're not so overcommitted and overreaching that I know you're telling me nice things or what you mean to do or it just seems to fit the moment. I begin to get a sense that you will follow through on what you say you will do because I know how we make decisions together. And the third piece, which I think may be the biggest, I can rest in how you respond to things that we haven't discussed. 
Because there's nothing we're going to talk about in all of the decision-making and all the pages that you hold in your hands and the slides we throw up on the screen that is going to let us prepare for everything. And one of the things that disrupts marriage is the unknown. And I think what we've talked about to this point and what we will continue to talk on is the kind of thing that allows us to trust God and one another uh, in the midst of the unknown. Uh, So with that in mind, uh, let us pray. Lord, we come to you, and we want to be good decision makers. We want to make decisions in such a way that in the midst of the process, we trust you and grow closer to our spouse. And we ask that you would use this material to help us do it. In your name we pray. Amen. Just a few quick words.